The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Amen. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody here in the room, thanks for being here. Everybody tuning in online, welcome. Visitors, thanks for being here. Uh, I hope you know that you are more than welcome here. Your presence is valued, it's cherished, and if you'd give us a chance to connect with you, we'd really, really appreciate that. Uh, I also wanted to take this morning to thank a group of folks in this congregation who serve week in, week out, not necessarily with the spotlight on them uh, because they're on the worship team, but they're not in front of you, they're behind you. I wanted to thank our tech volunteers this morning. I'm so very grateful for all, yeah, stand up please, would you? Thank you so very much. They put in a lot of work and they are just such a great group of volunteers. I'm grateful for everybody who, who serves at this church, but the fact that they're behind you, they're a little bit more unsung. And so I hope, I hope you're able to find them afterwards. Anybody that you know who's on the tech team and uh, give them a shout out, give them your thanks. And actually, if you're at all interested in serving on the tech team, we're gonna be having a little training here tomorrow night at 6 p.m. right in this room. So if that's something you've kind of thought about before, maybe I'd be good at that, maybe that's a way I could serve, come on out, uh, shoot me an email, talk to me after service. Come on out tomorrow night at 6 p.m. We'll be right in this room and uh, we're gonna take a look at how things work back there. So I hope you'll, you'll consider joining us tomorrow night at 6 p.m. if that's where you feel called to serve. But we're in week two of our sermon series, The Gospel According To... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're gonna be spending time in the Gospel of Mark this morning, beginning in chapter two, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks this morning for the bread and the cup around the table where we encounter your presence. We give you thanks for your word that speaks to us through your scripture. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would continue to speak into our hearts to change us more and more into your image. Jesus, I ask for the gift of preaching, and we ask that your name would be glorified and lifted up. So in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
the New Testament has a quirk hiding in plain sight. When you get to the end of the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew, Matthew's gospel, we were just spending time there last week, and when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel and you turn the next page, there's something interesting awaiting you on the other side. Another gospel, the gospel of Mark. Now that might not seem interesting to us, but I think it is. We're used to that, we take it for granted, but the fact that we finish a life of Jesus, according to Matthew, and we turn the page and there's another account of the life of Jesus, I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because I'm not sure that's how we would have done it if we were in charge of writing and compiling the New Testament. I, I dare say many of us would have said four Gospels. No, one, one singular definitive account. That, that's all we need, one Gospel, one account of Jesus' life, right? In our modern kind of just the facts mentality, that's probably what we would have done. But that's not how the Holy Spirit did it. That's not how God designed it. God gave us not just one account of the life of Jesus, but four distinct accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Four distinct accounts with, with differences. Now, there's a lot of overlap, right? There's a ton of overlap. In fact, scholars tell us that 97% of Mark's gospel can be found in either Matthew or Luke. There's a lot of overlap. But there's also distinctness to each one, right? Each gospel tells the story of Jesus in its own way, right? And while we might have thought that a single court reporter's journalistic account of the life of Jesus would do, God knew that it would take more. God knew that it would take the artistry, the poetry, the theology, and the music of four voices singing together in harmony. That's actually how New Testament scholar Richard Hayes encourages us to read the four Gospels, to read them as harmonizing together, though singing distinct parts. He says, we should hear their testimonies as four distinctive voices singing in polyphony. The art of reading the Gospels is like the art of listening to choral singing. And he says a good choral piece isn't just unison the whole time, right? As you just heard, our, our lovely voices leading us on the acapella team and all the voices in this room, a good choral piece isn't just in unison. We would lose the harmonic texture if that were the case. But a good choral piece has difference, even dissonance that finally resolves into something more beautiful than we could imagine. God gave us Matthew, and God also gave us Mark. And we should give thanks for that. Thanks be to God for the gospel of Mark. Because Mark tells the story of Jesus in his own way. He's singing his own notes. He's singing his own part. Or to change the metaphor, he paints a portrait of Jesus differently than Matthew. Right? He's, he's painting in a slightly different style, using a slightly different palette of colors. So let's zoom in on Mark this morning and listen for the distinctive notes of the gospel that Mark sings. Let's move into Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. 
He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. As you know, in Jesus' day, people often stored liquid in animal skins, right? And especially wine, which new wine is still fermenting, so it's, it's stored in a wine skin. And if you put that new wine that's still fermenting, still giving off gas, if you put that in an old wine skin, something dried out, no flexibility, it's going to crack. It's going to break. It'll leak. So for new wine... You've got to have new wineskin. You've got to have something with flexibility, something with some give, something with some life in it. Or to change the metaphor as Jesus does, he talks about pairing an old piece of cloth with new cloth. He says the tear you're trying to mend, it's going to get worse when they rip, when they pull apart from one another. There's a sense in which the gospel of Mark itself is a kind of new wine. Many scholars believe that Mark is actually the earliest gospel written. So Mark, in a sense, kind of founds its own genre of literature, the gospel, right? And it actually includes that. It's the only of the four gospels that seems to include this title within it. In the very first verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Gospels are a little bit like the Hellenistic biographies that we're aware of, but they're also wholly their own. They're also distinct. So in a sense, Mark brings this new wine onto the scene of the world. But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's not really talking about literary feats. When Jesus talks about new wine in Mark 2, he's talking about his life and ministry and what he's doing. In Jesus... God is doing something that can't fit in to the regular categories. In Jesus, God is doing something that cannot fit in to our settled patterns of understanding the world. Can't fit in to our settled wineskins, those old wineskins. They can't hold the new wine that Jesus is bringing. They'll crack, they'll break. Jesus is bringing new wine. And he's talking about the earth-shatteringly new thing that is happening in his ministry and in the kingdom of God coming near. The settled ways of understanding the world are being burst open. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had your, your regular categories for understanding crack open, be ripped Willie Jennings tells a story about a 16th century Jesuit missionary named Jose de Acosta. And Acosta, he was born in the 1500s in Spain, and at 12, he ran away from his family. He ran away because he wanted to join the Society of Jesus. He wanted to become a Jesuit, and so he did. And because of that, he got one of the best educations you could ever find at that time in the world. He studied philosophy for four years. He studied theology for four years under some of Spain's finest theologians. 
He studied and he was bright, he was smart, and he was their favorite pupil. So if there was anybody who developed some of the best categories for understanding and perceiving the world, it was Jose de Acosta. But something happened to him on a boat. Something happened that ripped a little tear in the fabric. Something happened that cracked the wineskin. You see, he was sailing to the new world. He was sailing to this side of the world, and he sailed around a bit, and he got to Panama, and it was on a ship from Panama to Peru that something happened to crack his categories of understanding. What happened was, he was very well-versed in Aristotle, and Acosta, who knew Aristotle well, thought, like Aristotle, that the world at the equator would be so hot everything was on fire. That's what Aristotle thought. He thought that basically at the equator, everything's gonna be burning up. It's gonna be that hot. Well, Acosta is sailing from Panama to Peru in March. It's not hot at all. In fact, it's very temperate and it's even cold. So what happens? He laughs. He laughs and he writes this about the experience. He says, I will confess here that I laughed and jeered at Aristotle's meteorological theories and his philosophy, seeing that in the very place where, according to his rules, everything must be burning and on fire, I and all my companions were cold. Acosta's laugh is the laugh of someone's who, someone whose categories have been burst. It's the laugh of someone whose wineskins can't hold the new wine coming into it, right? It cracks, it opens up. And the old ways of understanding the, th- the ways of the world aren't going to work. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had a, a tear in your philosophical fabric? Has your theological wineskin ever burst? I know that's happened to me many times. We can probably sympathize with Acosta's laughter, although sometimes those moments are less funny and more mournful, right? They can be scary when our ways of understanding the world can't quite keep up with what's coming at us. But in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is bringing a new wine that unsettles the categories of the people around him. He's bringing a new wine that's, that's tearing at the fabric, that's pulling the cloth apart. And so I want to look at two moments this morning in the Gospel of Mark, two tears in the fabric, two places where Mark tells us of a Jesus who bursts our regular ways of understanding the world, two places where Mark unsettles our ideas about who God is and what he's doing. There's one at the beginning and one at the end. So let's go to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 together. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Mark's gospel shoots off like a rocket. It's an 
gospel with urgency. There's an energy to Mark that I think is uniquely its own in all four gospels. And we see that in this moment, right? It bursts off and by verse nine, Jesus is already being baptized. As one scholar says, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't have time for these long discourses on the lilies of the field, right? It's just bam, bam, scene to scene to scene. And here's Jesus being baptized in verse nine, and the heavens are torn open. They're ripped apart. And it's that word torn that actually relates to the cloth tearing apart in Mark chapter two. It's, it's the Greek word schizomenus, right? And you might hear in that schiz, that word for schism, right? That's where we get our root word for schism or for schizophrenia, right? That's to tear the mind. And so here in Mark, there's a tearing happening. The heavens are are ripped apart as Jesus is baptized. And now that doesn't mean that Jesus necessarily saw some door ajar miles in the sky. But what it means is that God, who is in heaven, that's God's reality, is pulling back the curtain of ordinary reality, right? God is is opening up something new and surprising and earth-shattering, and God even speaks over Jesus, He says, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So there's the father, there's the son, and there's the spirit descending like a dove. Father, son, spirit. That's not the normal way of thinking about God. This is a category bursting moment. This is a a wineskin bursting moment where the regular ways of understanding who God is are being pulled apart and something new, some new wine is coming in, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is the beginning of understanding the triune God. This is the beginning of understanding God as one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus. This is another one of those amazingly radical things that kind of just hide in plain sight. We just take it for granted that we worship the man, Jesus of Nazareth, as divine. That would have been unthinkable for people in Jesus' day, right? Absolutely unthinkable for them to attribute divinity to Jesus. And yet that's what we find. We find these first century Jews in droves worshiping Jesus Christ. In fact, some scholars use this as a way to to argue for the truth of the resurrection to say, how do we account for all of these people changing their beliefs about God overnight without something like the resurrection of Jesus, without Jesus being risen? The wineskins of who they thought God was were being burst. But there's another ripping of reality that happens at the end of Mark's gospel. There's another tear in the fabric. Let's move to Mark chapter 15 with Jesus on the cross, beginning in verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. 
And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. The centurion, likely a pagan, has seen this before. He's seen crucifixions over and over again. This is a, a battle-hardened centurion, right? Someone who's killed human beings the way some of us might kill a fly. And he looks at the grisly, grotesque corpse of a man hanging on a cross. And he says, that's the son of God. Something is revealed to him. Something is unveiled the regular categories for thinking about God have been cracked and burst. And there's actually another literal unveiling that's happening, right? Because the moment after Jesus breathes his last, it says the curtain in the temple is torn in two, top to bottom. The temple in Jerusalem, this is the holiest place that you can find on earth. This is God's street address. That's where God lives, is the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. And the moment that Jesus breathes his last, ripped. The categories of understanding God, of understanding God's people are being burst, are being torn apart. When Jesus, the crucified man, is identified with God. This is quite a moment. This is quite a moment when the categories of understanding who God is are defined as a crucified, shamed, grotesque corpse on the cross, right? And this bursts everybody's categories, not just Jew, but Gentile. Of course, it bursts the categories of Israel, but even the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Romans, for them, Divinity is for the powerful, right? Divinity is for the greatest of the great. You don't identify it with a slave's death, right? As the, the scholar Tom Holland says, divinity was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself. But he says in Jesus, God becomes closer to the weak than to the mighty. He becomes closer to the poor than to the rich, to the least than to the great. The gospel according to Mark doesn't leave things neat and tidy for us. The fabric is stretching, the wineskins are being burst by new wine and it's cracking all over the place. It, it cracks so much that it almost feels like the ending of Mark's gospel has been ripped, right? Have you, have you read the ending of Mark's gospel in a while? Ben preached on this last year. You get to the very end and the women are at the empty tomb and there's a man in white who says Jesus has been risen and the final words of the gospel are they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. All of 
their categories for what happens to dead, crucified bodies have been burst, have been broken. And it's scary. They're, they're amazed, but they're also afraid. It's scary when our categories burst. It's scary when we realize we can't control the world, that we're contingent, when we realize that the regular way of doing things won't work anymore. It can be scary to see the fabric pulled apart. But if we trust in God, we can trust in the God who tears. We can trust in the God who tears up the neat and tidy. Because when things are neat and tidy, it's probably because someone's getting swept under the rug. When things are neat and tidy, it's probably because someone's getting pushed to the side. And so we long for God to come down, to to rip up the falsities and show us the truth. We long like Isaiah who says, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Jesus is the answer to Isaiah. In Jesus, at his baptism, God has ripped the heavens open. In Jesus, at his death, God has ripped the veil of the temple. And in Jesus, God rips the cover off the cosmos. He reaches in at Calvary and he turns it inside out. Because in Jesus, in the crucified Christ, God is ripping open and rearranging the world for his reign. In the crucified Christ, God is ripping open and rearranging the world so that he can reign on earth as in heaven. And now, it's not so neat and tidy anymore because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now it's not so neat and tidy anymore because if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to take up your cross. It's not so neat and tidy anymore because the kingdom belongs to the little ones. The Lord is servant of all. This is the world according to Mark. This is the good news according to Jesus, the crucified God who rips open and rearranges the world for his reign to come and take root. So church, what categories does God need to step in, rip open and rearrange so that we might live in to the activity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit alive amongst us? What wineskins does God need to burst by the power of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Messiah? May we walk into the future sustained by the blood of the covenant, the new wine that shows us the salvation of God in Jesus who gave his life a ransom for many. Let's stand and praise the God of new wine.